It rained in Rome today, Thursday, January the 10th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. Political intrigue and mystery in Paris today as French authorities try to figure out who murdered three Kurdish activists. Also, an American student experiences life amid conflict in a suburb of Damascus. She says she was struck by the level of denial there about the war in Syria. Helicopters fly overhead all the time, and you'll ask someone, what was that, or where are they going? And they say, what was what? And later, a journalist strikes up a conversation with a dictator's daughter on Twitter. So I sent her a tweet saying, since you are so communicative, could you let me back into Uzbekistan? Uh, I was deported without an explanation. Those stories coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was a mission impossible, or at least a mission very unlikely. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson and the chairman of Google, Eric Schmidt, went to North Korea with two main objectives, to ask North Korea to loosen its grip on Internet access and to secure the release of an American citizen being held by North Korea for unspecified crimes. The release didn't happen, but Richardson and Schmidt did get to tour two computer centers in Pyongyang, and Schmidt says he did urge North Korean leaders to let their citizens connect to the outside world or risk being left behind. Victor Cha is Korea chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Uh, Victor Cha, regardless of outcome, what does it mean when the head of Google goes to North Korea? A visit like this for the North Koreans was as much about themselves as it was about the world in the sense that they wanted to validate for themselves that they could talk at a level of somebody like an Eric Schmidt. Now, who knows whether when he viewed these facilities, what he thought of them, what the level of it was. But as with many things in North Korea, you know, they do, a lot of it is for internal validation. And in that sense, they probably wanted to see how they measured up in the eyes of someone like the CEO of Google. And when you say internal validation, is that kind of just meaning it's it's a visit for show? Certainly it's show, yeah. But I think in terms of their own technicians, they want to be able to see what someone from the outside thinks of their work and uh, allows them to determine if they are sort of up up to snuff. So when Schmidt says he urged North Korean leaders to uh, connect to the outside world, let their citizens connect uh, or risk being left behind, do you think they listen to him seriously? That's the sort of message you want to deliver to the very top leadership in the country and to tell that to the working level officials he toured with. You know, certainly it's good that people say this to them. But, you know, in the end, how much of a difference it will make in terms of the politics of the country is very hard to say. Now, we know Schmidt didn't go through the the usual diplomatic channels for this trip. Does this strike you, this trip, as kind of a rogue effort? And is there a place for rogue efforts in, in dealing with North Korea? I wouldn't call it a rogue effort. I mean, I think there have been private missions in the past that have gone to the country, not one that has gained as much media attention as this. The U.S. government wanted to disassociate themselves from the trip, which makes sense because any U.S. government doesn't want to be seen as handing over its foreign policy to freelancers. So in that sense, I think it's it's fine. But in the broader scheme of things, the idea of this trip is trying to begin to pierce the information bubble in North Korea. You know, in that sense, you know, I don't think any harm was done, certainly. Mm. 
And uh, if it leads to more trips like this that could, again, try to undermine the iron grip that the regime has on information in the country, that can only be a positive thing. If we look at Eric Schmidt as a pure businessman, I mean, what's the incentive for a trip like this? I mean, there's no money to be made in North Korea as far as anybody can see. Uh, It's a good question. You know, I think North Korea is probably one of the last frontiers in terms of not being connected to the Internet. And maybe that was one of the reasons he was attracted to the trip. For someone like him who's probably traveled the world, this is someplace he's not been. There could have been just basic curiosity that led him to do this. I would agree with you. I don't think Google would be looking at North Korea as a new market to enter, uh, especially if the regime behaves as the way it does, given all the problems that Google had in China. And in North Korea, the problems would be exponentially worse. Victor Cha at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also the author of The Impossible State, North Korea, Past and Future. Thanks very much indeed. That's my pleasure. The Obama administration prefers organizing its own diplomacy, though it's not always aimed at heads of state. In France, the U.S. embassy has been reaching out to immigrant suburbs outside Paris, and the ambassador is leading the way. The world's Amy Bracken explains. Ambassador Charles Rivkin once told a reporter that he wanted to go where no American ambassador had been before. He was referring to low-income, ethnically diverse suburbs of Paris. Le président Obama... To Villiers-le-Belle, a largely West African community that was partly destroyed by riots in 2007, Rivkin paid a visit to inaugurate a mural of Martin Luther King. After the ambassador's speech, his delegation sang, We Shall Overcome. Ah, good old U.S. public diplomacy. It has a long history in Europe, but the 21st century has seen a shift with stepped-up outreach into minority, especially Muslim, communities. In France, where the policy is carried out by the cinematic Ambassador Rivkin, it has been very well received in the immigrant suburbs. Take, for example, the time Rivkin showed up at a minority-run media outlet with the actor Samuel L. Jackson. Editor Nordine Nabili was there. I'm a fervent supporter of this approach. It's not that I love Americans. It's that we welcome anyone who wants to see what we do and exchange practices. When the representative of the most important power comes and spends two hours here with all the young people, it's very important symbolically. It's validating. It's not just splashy visits. Rivkin and embassy staff have met with community organizations. They've invited young leaders, activists, and artists to the ambassador's residence and recruited candidates for State Department-funded visits to the U.S. The embassy launched the initiative during the Bush administration after 9-11. They had instructions from the State Department say, do something Islam, so they did something Islam. Gilles Capel is a French academic and expert on Islam in the Paris suburbs, or banlieue. He says it was more than anti-Americanism among Muslims that concerned State Department officials. They sort of thought that the French were characterized by a political elite that was uh, too white, too male, too old, and that if the country was not more uh, pluralistic, then it would become weaker, and that a weaker France was not good as an ally. In fact, two U.S. diplomatic cables revealed by WikiLeaks laid this out in embarrassing clarity. They slammed the French government for failing to integrate minorities into positions of power. The embassy in France declined to comment for this story, but it has posted on its website a long list of activities it's carried out in the suburbs, 
as well as information on the International Visitors Leadership Program. Alumni of that program include elites like François Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy, but it's been expanded to people like Tara Dickman, the French daughter of South African immigrants. Obama's former campaign manager recruited her for training in community organizing in Chicago. The trip inspired her to create a group called the Collective Against Racial Profiling. Within a year, police profiling went from a sort of topic that didn't exist to a major political stake. And this is really thanks to this trip. But not everyone is happy with what the U.S. government has been up to in the banlieue. Among the critics is Nicolas Dupont-Aignan. He's a center-right member of parliament. How will uh, answer the U.S. government if the French government decided to go in some suburbs of the United States to say to the people, oh, you are not very well treated by your government, and we are going to help you, and uh, in exchange you are going to travel in France, you will be agent from us. And he's not the only one. Benjamin Pelletier blogs about international cultural influence. He says while the French government is not doing enough to reach out to its minority communities, that doesn't justify the activism of a foreign power. What happens when you have a certain segment of the young population that has been influenced by another country acting in its own national interest? Isn't there a risk of fracturing national cohesion? But others say the real problem is that French authorities don't recognize the potential among suburban minority youth. Siam Azbag is also with the Collective Against Racial Profiling. <laughs> We've got an Arabic proverb that says, uh, when you want to do something, you find a way. If not, you find an excuse. And I think that those who are accusing the uh, U.S. Uh, to interfere in uh, French uh, affairs found an excuse. And Rokaya Diallo, who went on a State Department trip to the U.S., says of course American diplomats are acting in their own interest, but at least they're paying attention. The ambassador of the U.S. is seen in the suburbs more often than the ministers of our own country. Why is that? Diallo believes the U.S. government has caught on to something important, that a future monsieur or madame président may well emerge from one of those diverse, underserved suburbs. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Paris. Paris is also a hub for activists and dissidents from all over the world. Three of those activists were murdered last night. All three were Kurdish women and activists for the PKK. That's the militant group that's been fighting for Kurdish rights in Turkey for decades. The U.S. and Turkey call the PKK a terrorist group. Christopher Dickey is the Paris bureau chief for Newsweek. Christopher, tell us about these women and how they died. Well, I think the most interesting of the the women is uh, a founder of the PKK, uh, who has been very close to the most famous founder and head of the organization, Abdullah Ocalan, for many years. What's interesting about her and about this whole situation is that only yesterday uh, it was announced that Ocalan, who's in prison in Turkey, in an island off the coast of Turkey, had reached an agreement for a roadmap to end the 30-year-old insurgency there. So there's all kinds of questions about whether this murder was in some way linked to that deal And if so, who had the motives to carry it out and who had the skills to carry it out? Because it looks like it was a pretty professional hit. Right. Uh, And uh, with uh, silencers used on the pistols, allegedly, it sounded very cloak and dagger. Um, Who are the likely suspects? If you talk to Kurdish activists, uh, they're trying to point the finger, if not at the government in Ankara, maybe at some factions of the government in Ankara 
or in the military in Ankara who want to undermine this peace initiative. Um, it's also possible that there were dissident groups within the PKK who thought it might be useful to get rid of these women. Uh, it may be even that people who were in favor of the peace settlement thought that the, uh, the main one of these women uh, would be a, a real problem for them. Uh, it, it's, it's that kind of complicated Middle Eastern conspiracy theory that just abounds after an event like this. But I think there's no question it was an assassination. And in fact, it's already been called that by the French interior minister. Chris, is it is it me or is there a lot of this international intrigue and occasional violence uh, in Paris? Or have I just seen too many Jason Bourne movies? Well, I think one reason that those Jason Bourne movies take place in Paris is because it's a very beautiful place that does have a very great deal of intrigue. I mean, over the years, there have been a number of people assassinated in Paris uh, by various factions settling scores. Uh, back in the, uh, in the very early 1980s, the Iranian government, the revolutionary government, was carrying out a systematic campaign of murder uh, in the streets of Europe, and a lot of those murders took place in Paris. Even before that, you had the Israelis killing people that they thought were in some way connected with the Munich Olympics massacre of 1972 here in Paris. So there is a a sort of long, grim tradition of murder linked to the Middle East here in Paris. Why is that historically? Is there a reason for Paris being a center of such stuff? Well, I think because it is a a city that has taken in lots of exiles and lots um, uh, lots of people who are not conspiring against the French government, but maybe conspiring against other governments or other factions around the world. Uh, and it's certainly not a place where it's easy to get a gun. It's certainly not a place that doesn't have good police work. Uh, but uh, these people are here. They're important. And at some point, um, dictators, tyrants, or other factions just decide it's time to try and get rid of them. And this is where they are. Christopher Dickey, head of Newsweek's Paris office. Thank you very much. Thank you. Still ahead, you can learn a lot about the conflict in Syria from a group of young ballerinas on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Israelis are gearing up for a national election in less than two weeks, and the campaign is in full swing. 34 parties are competing for 120 seats in the Knesset. Voters pick parties instead of candidates. The more votes a party gets, the more seats it wins in the Knesset. Some of the parties won't get any seats at all, but that's not stopping them, as The World's Matthew Bell reports. As with Israeli elections past, this month's contest includes a number of political parties on the fringe. Some don't even pretend to be contenders. Eretz Hadashah is a bit different, though. This is one of their campaign ads. Eretz Hadashah is a new party, and its message is straightforward. It wants to expose big money in politics. The party's logo in Hebrew is an allusion to some vulgar slang, and its Facebook page has pictures of people raising their middle fingers. But for all the irreverence, the polls say Eretz Hadashah might actually win a couple of seats in Parliament. In fact, it's one of several smaller parties that's right on that edge. They have a shot of passing the 2% threshold and gaining access to legislative power in Israel. <laughs> 
They are the kind of parties that come from outside of the system. Israeli writer Edgar Carrot says there is something satisfying about voting for a party that may very well fail to get into parliament. It's a protest vote, he says, but it still might matter. Basically, they say to people, you know, if you voted so far and it had been frustrated, but you think that voting is important and you don't want, you know, just to stay home, so vote for something new. In Israel, we have a tradition of such parties, and some of them became surprisingly strong. Take the Pensioners' Party, for example. In 2006, it surprised everyone by winning seven seats. It went on to join Israel's governing coalition. But the pensioners flamed out pretty quickly. That's one downside of such a freewheeling political system. Then there's the Kadima Party. It was created in 2005 by one of Israel's most iconic leaders, Ariel Sharon. In 2009, Kadima grabbed more seats than any other single party, but at this point, the polls say it's in serious trouble. So to talk about Kadima and where the party is at in this election, I'm here with Maddie Friedman, who covers the election for the Times of Israel. Maddie, is this a situation where, like walking into the movie Titanic, we know how it's going to end and it's not a happy ending? For Kadima, it is a Titanic-like situation. Kadima is currently the largest party in Knesset. And it was in the term of the previous government, Israel's ruling party, and in probably the greatest political collapse in Israel's history, this party is going to be erased. question is now, will it get enough votes to have two seats in the Knesset, that's the minimum, or will it miss the threshold and have zero seats? Among the other parties expected to win either zero or just two seats in this election are a few religious parties, the two pirate parties calling for more online freedom. There's a green environmental party and the green leaf party. It advocates the legalization of marijuana. It's never won a seat in parliament, though this will be its fifth Israeli election. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Matthew also blogs from the Middle East. You can read his latest post on the Israeli rights shift further to the right at theworld.org. In Iran, you know, that arch enemy of Israel, there are some jobs that can be really troublesome. Take being a musician, a risky business. That was clear this week when Iranian authorities arrested five members of an underground band. Their crime was working with Iranian dissident singers and TV channels based in the U.S. We wondered what it's like to be a musician in Iran, so we asked one. Self-censorship starts even before any note is played. That's a composer and musician based in Tehran. We're not using his name for security reasons. If you want to compose a piece of music or an album and release it officially in Iran, the fear starts in the beginning. There is an office of music in the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, which is downtown. And the procedure is that first you... Supply them with the lyrics. Then they will ask you, how do you want to sing these lyrics? Then you have to either say, is it is a melodic or is it spoken or is a mixture of melodic and spoken? They will cross out some words or they will just say no or they will approve it. Then the next step is you go to a recording and then provide the pre-release album to the same place but to the other room which is controlling the musical uh, part of it. Then they go to another meeting for themselves. It will take another couple of months. And they finally may say this is approved or not approved. They may take out part of the song or remove complete songs from the album. Mm. 
they have a very close mentality. And uh, this kind of things, uh, which are totally illogical, happens. I mean, the whole process sounds not only bureaucratic, but quite surreal. I'm, I'm wondering, are there talented musicians in Tehran who just say, this is just too much. I'm not even going to be a musician or, or try to because I have to go through this whole rigmarole. Yes. Many people have just put away music or they're just playing music for themselves at home. And they record and put the music as MP3 online just for the heck of it. Because this is only the first part. If you get the permit of the album, then you may or may not get the permit for performing that album. Because of, of the mentality of these crazy people, they say that maybe one song is approved to be released on a CD. Because a CD can be played at home or in a car with maximum of 10 people around you. Is that stated in the law? You can't have more than 10 people no, listening? No, no, no. There's nothing written about this. Okay. They will tell you right there. But if you go to a concert, they say that one particular song, if it can raise the hormonal level of the young people in the concert, which may lead to inappropriate social behavior of the concert goers, that song will be omitted from the performance. What about the government? Is there a possibility that they do see some of these sensors in place to kind of prevent a, a cultural flood of Western sounds coming into Iran? The scholars have concluded that anything that takes their mind away from the religion, from God, and create an illusion or a joyous feeling which uh, takes you away from the religion is prohibited. And then they conclude this can be music. Yeah. Can't have that joyous feeling, I guess. Yes. Yeah. We've been speaking with an Iranian musician in the capital, Tehran. He has not used his name for security reasons. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, despite the enormous restrictions, many Iranian rock and pop bands somehow manage to thrive above ground and below. Not surprisingly, the ones who really take off have to leave Iran to do so. Here's one such group I presented a few years ago at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, the first underground Iranian band to tour the U.S. This is 127 and a lovely tune from a couple years back titled Coming Around. Coming around, around walking around, around This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, an American student finds herself in Syria during the revolution and wrestles with her role. Is this my fight to fight, right? These people are taking to the streets. They're risking their lives for principles and values that I also hold. But I don't know how to contribute to that. And I don't know what my role should be. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. For two years, we've been hearing about the Arab Spring and its triumphs and disasters. Syria falls in the latter category. Last week, the U.N. said 60,000 people have been killed in Syria since the revolution began there. A steady stream of images from Syria, pictures of the fighting of death and suffering, describe the hell that is life in a country at war. But even so, there are places in Syria where life goes on, where people still go to work, where children still attend school, and where young ballerinas still have their pictures taken. They were as serious about their ballet, about these portraits, as, you know, there's a crisis going on in the war. But for them, this is the absolute most serious moment. Emma LeBlanc witnessed that moment in a suburb of Damascus. LeBlanc is a 25-year-old Rhodes Scholar from Manchester, New Hampshire. In 2008, as an undergrad at Brown University, she took an Arabic language course in Damascus. She ended up staying in Syria for over four years. So when the Syrian revolution started, she was there. She saw how Syrians tried to maintain some sense of normalcy in their daily lives, even as the conflict escalated. LeBlanc began taking photos in the town of Sahnaya, a religiously diverse Damascus suburb that she says looks very much like any New England suburban town. Sahnaya was very pro-regime from the beginning of the revolution. And at the time when it started, no one really knew what the whole thing meant, right? No one knew if this was a revolution. Some people thought this was going to be an isolated event in Dera and possibly there would be reforms. That would be the end of it. Even when it spread to other cities, when it spread to homes, Syrians weren't sure whether simply the government would crush this movement and that would be the end. And so a lot of the suburbs around Sahnaya were also sort of sitting it out, waiting to see what would happen. And that changed for a lot of them, right? It's one of the centers of the conflict now is the, the suburbs of Damascus. But Sahnaya remains very pro-regime, partly because there are so many minorities and they, they are worried about what might come. They're worried about an Islamic revolution and, and what that would mean for them. And so when the pictures were taken, the revolution was mostly felt in Sahnaya in more material ways, in terms of shortages, food was getting harder to get, he, there was no heating oil, a lot of power cuts. The pictures were actually, we'd planned to take them for months with film, this large format, beautiful film camera. We got there to this basement room in the studio and realized there's no electricity. So it's pitch black in there. So we were able, you know, we took them with digital cameras and it was fine and you could see it. But this is how Sahnaya was experiencing it now. And since the pictures, it's changed, not in terms of the violence. There there is more fighting in and around Sahnaya. There are more checkpoints. You do hear shooting at night. And you can really hear them um, dropping shells on Deraya next door, right? Mm. That's where one of the sites of the biggest massacres of the revolution is, is literally a walk through the olive orchards away. But there are also a lot of refugees from other cities in Syria now in Sahnaya. So you see people living in tents and camped out in empty buildings all over. So not without risk to go uh, down the street to take your daughters to ballet class, but uh, kind of the certain sense of normalcy uh, in, in Sahnaya. There are a few smiles here among these girls, but mostly there's this kind of blank stare in their faces that contrasts I find really sharply with kind of these graceful poses they're trying to strike, these plies. Describe those faces for us. 
Sure. I mean, the, the students seem, they are, they're very serious in the classroom. And it's funny because before and after the photographs, they're joking around. It's the normal chaos of ballet class, right? These you know, five-year-olds in tutus. But the thing I liked about the pictures and the way that they pose in front of the cameras were they were as serious about their ballet, about these portraits as, you know, there's a crisis going on in the war. But for them, this is the absolute most serious moment. That's what those serious faces are. Absolutely. Um, It struck me that, uh, you know, these girls are someday going to grow up to be beautiful women. And then I thought, if they grow up, I mean, this is kind of a theme that I hear more and more from kids in refugee camps, Syrian kids in refugee camps. They talk about their friends who don't live anymore. How much were these girls connected to the conflict? Was it in their minds? It's really unclear to me, actually, how aware they are of what's happening in the rest of Syria. One of the things I was struck by in Sahna is the extent to which people were committed to denying the war. And I think part of that was self-preservation and also for their children's sake. There's the sense that you hold out till the last moment. You don't want them to have to face the reality of what's happening. And, and because it's happening on the other side of the olive orchards, you try to maintain appearances. And, and it's hard, right? Helicopters fly overhead and all the time. And it's in Sahna, you'll, you'll ask someone, what was that? Or where are they going? And they say, what was what? Now, you know, the war photographer is prone to uh, being in ditches and, and pitch battle. Why did you decide to take pictures of little girls in tutus to kind of illustrate war? So I, I had been to Iraq before, and so I had seen fighting and violence. I'd seen a little bit of what war looks like. And I was really struck in my own experience how little I felt I actually knew about Iraq, right? I could tell you people are fighting in Mosul today. This many people were shot but I had no idea of what people's lives looked like every day. And I, and I think that's important. And I think we can often lose a sense of humanity of the people whose lives are affected by war when we see the only pictures we see are fighters. And when we see civilians, they're only wounded, they're crying, they're fleeing. We don't get to see people still trying to make their lives meaningful. And I actually, I took a year's worth of ballet classes at this gym, and this was an opportunity. And I was seeing up close that people were, they were struggling to to live their lives and maintain some sense of normalcy. And that's what I wanted to capture. So when you go back and you look at these photographs, I mean, here's a, a candid shot taken before, maybe after a class, and the girls are gathered around. It's that chaos that you're talking about right. in ballet class. What do you see now when you look in this? I worry about it, actually, because I think that that's not sustainable, right? This was taken a year into the revolution. And at that point, there was a real sense of relief for me to be part of that. There was also a sense of guilt that to be here in this comfortable, pleasant environment as terrible things are happening around. But for for their own sakes, I, I was relieved. And that's already starting to change, right? Some of the dancers have left town. A lot of the Alawites in Sahnai are going to places like Tartus and Latakia, where they're largely Alawite areas and they and, feel And the safer. Alawites are generally pro-Assad. They are, largely because I think they've benefited well under the regime and are worried about an Islamic revolution. And certainly in Sahnaya, that that's proven to be the case. You seem really determined to answer a lot of those questions that remain for you about Syria. You and your boyfriend, Phil, uh, also a journalist, live in Sahnaya and uh, you have an apartment there. Do, do you consider that your home right now? For a long time, I did. And on a personal level, I think that was one of the things that was hard for me about the revolution was understanding that this wasn't my home. I knew I would never be Syrian, but felt really comfortable there. Also, I wasn't sure how to make sense of my presence in Syria. Is this my fight to fight, right? These people are taking to the streets. They're risking their lives for principles and values that I also hold. But I don't know how to contribute to that. And I don't know what my role should be. 
I feel like I'm speaking to somebody who can really interpret Syria for me. So uh, kind of as an insider, Emma, what do you see happening for people in Syria over the coming year? And I mean, your your hopes and fears for, for Syria. Uh, to be honest, I've been wrong about everything so far. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm the right I'm not person asking for prognosis. Yeah, but I mean, I, w- I would never have predicted the revolution there in the first place, right. to be honest. I think there's a lot of talk now about an Islamic revolution, about if and when the Assad regime falls. And I think at this point, a lot of people assume it's a when, not an if, that there will be an Islamic government, that it will not be a democratic transition. And I still hold out a lot of hope for Syria in that regard. Syrians are working really hard to make sure this does not become a sectarian war, to make sure that when Assad is gone, there is democracy. Some of the young activists I know, when they go around the country delivering aid, delivering medicine, they go around very consciously in mixed sect teams, right? So an Alawite woman with her hair uncovered, along with a Druze guy, a Sunni guy, and another Christian woman, they go, they'll go to Deda, they'll go to Homs, and they're just trying to reaffirm every day that Syrians are in this together. Mm. And even the Muslims that I know, and even those who would like to see some sort of Islamic government one day who are involved in this revolution, they'd like to see a democratically elected Islamic government. Emma LeBlanc, thanks so much. Thank you. New Hampshire native and Rhodes Scholar Emma LeBlanc on her experience in Sahnaya, Syria. You can see Emma's photos of young ballerinas there at theworld.org. Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez didn't make it to his swearing-in today. The ceremony had been postponed anyway. But Chavez supporters in Caracas held a rally wearing I am Chavez t-shirts and proclaiming their loyalty. The ailing socialist leader's absence has Venezuelans everywhere wondering what's next for the country. Reporter Roxandra Guidi has our story from Los Angeles. It's a situation that has Venezuelans on edge, playing out like a Latin American magic realism novel or one of the country's popular telenovelas. Here's how it started. On December 10th, President Hugo Chavez traveled to Cuba for his fourth cancer surgery. Since then, he's disappeared from the public and is believed to be in grave condition. Meanwhile, his inauguration, the start of his 14th year in power, his third term in office, was slated for today. The presidents of Uruguay and Bolivia say they'll be there. But Chavez, he won't show. In Venezuela, Chavez supporters are holding street rallies to show their support. They're chanting, the Constitution is the revolution. They wave what's known as the Little Blue Book, a pocket-sized copy of Venezuela's Constitution, which Chavez revamped after taking power in 1999. But those revamped laws are up for debate. Critics say that Chavez and his supporters are stretching the Constitution to protect the president's power. Asdruba Laguiar is a Venezuelan law professor and former judge with the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Here he is speaking to Globovisión. First thing to prove is, was he elected by popular vote? Yes. Was he declared president? Yes. Has he been sworn in? No, not yet. So if this doesn't happen on January 10th, We need to revise the constitutions of 1961, 1952, 1947, 1936. We must check all of our constitutions. To Venezuelans in the United States, it can look confusing. They're not really creating a climate of institutional authority in Venezuela. 
Otto Schoren is an advertising executive in Los Angeles who left Venezuela for a better job here 11 years ago, just after the 2002 failed coup attempt against Chavez. He keeps up with the news back home through friends, family, and Venezuelan papers online. Now that Chavez is sick, it's even more obvious. We have a constitution, but now he's asked for an extension and was granted one. So then why do we even have a constitution? Sharon is disheartened. Venezuela's rule of law is vanishing, he says, and he wonders what happens after January 10th. What if Chavez still can't return? Will there be new elections? Meantime, in Venezuela, Chavez's political rivals are fueling concerns. Enrique Capriles Radonsky, who lost to Chavez in October's elections, worries about the military's role in a political transition. Chavez is a former colonel close to the military, and so is Diosdado Cabello, who leads Venezuela's Congress and would assume power if Chavez can't. The thought of a post-Chavez Venezuela, led by the military, gives Edgardo Ochoa chills. He's from the city of Valencia and moved to Los Angeles in 1996. We met at a coffee shop. I don't see what's going to happen in the next uh, month or two. The status quo for me is going to stay. doesn't make uh, huge of a difference. Uh, if Chavez is there or is not there, doesn't make a difference for me because the problem is the people. The people that is there ruling the country. But can the revolution survive without its leader? Luis Duno Gottberg says yes, absolutely. He's a Venezuelan professor of Hispanic studies at Rice University in Houston. I think whatever happens after Chavez, if it doesn't take into account those masses of people that have been deeply changed in the last 10 years, the analysis will be flawed. In other words, Duno Gottberg says Chavez's long rule has transformed Venezuela's society, and his brand of politics, Chavismo, can endure. After all, Venezuelans voted for Chavez's socialist rule all these years. But here are the complications. Possible splits within the military and loyalties might fade without Chavez's spirit. It's a political drama that turns off many Venezuelans who found more stability in the United States. Advertising executive Otto Schoen sums it up this way. El país donde uno nació es como la madre, ¿no? O sea, tú no puedes escoger a tu madre. The country where you were born is like your mother. You cannot choose your mother. Regardless, you love her very much. But the country where you choose to live is like your wife. You do get to choose whom you marry. And I feel that, in my case, Venezuela is my home country, my mother. But I just can't live with her anymore. Sharon has no plans to return to Venezuela, even if Chavez isn't there anymore. We're walking forward with a broken compass, Sharon says. He adds, it'll take a lot more than new presidential elections for Venezuela to find the political path that feels right to him again. For The World, I'm Ruxandra Guidi, Los Angeles. The Central Asian country we want you to name for today's GeoQuiz is a dry, landlocked country. It's mostly desert and mountains bordering neither oceans nor seas. It does border what was once one of the world's biggest lakes, the Aral Sea, but that body of water is now just a shrunken chain of polluted lakes. This is, in fact, a doubly landlocked nation, meaning it's completely surrounded by other landlocked countries. Only one other country in the world, tiny Liechtenstein, shares that distinction. 
This country's embassy in Washington has a website touting the latest news from home. There are lots of mentions of President Islam Karimov. We're going to hear about the president's controversial daughter in just a bit. First, you've got a little over a minute to name this doubly landlocked Central Asian nation. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Don't use that idiotic line, the dictator's daughter. That's what Golnara Karamova tweeted to journalist Natalia Antalava. Golnara Karamova is, in fact, the daughter of Islam Karimov, the brutal ruler of Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan, by the way, is the answer to our geo-quiz today. In addition to being her country's first daughter, Golnara Karimova is also an ambassador, a fashion designer, a ruthless businesswoman, and more recently, a pop singer with the stage name Gugusha. And she's been called the single most hated person in Uzbekistan. You can see why journalist Natalia Antalava wanted to interview her. Natalia, pretty extraordinary how you got to speak virtually with uh, Gulnora Karimova. Back in 2008, you were the BBC's Central Asian correspondent, got expelled from Uzbekistan with no explanation. You wanted to interview her but never got a chance. Then, more recently, this opportunity to communicate with her presented itself that's right. Imagine my surprise after all the failed attempts. So um, I was sitting on my very own couch talking to Gulnara Karimova for about three hours on Twitter. Very unexpected it was indeed. Uh, I came around completely accidentally. I noticed her tweeting with the communications director at the International uh, Crisis Group. I noticed that she was responding to his tweets and he was asking her about torture in Uzbek prisons. Seeing that unexpected dialogue, I thought, well, I might as well tweet hers too. So I sent her a tweet um, saying, since you are so communicative, could you let me back into Uzbekistan? Uh, I was deported without an explanation, referring to a quite recent deportation just last year. I Mm. went to Uzbekistan to do a story and was not allowed into the country, spent 24 hours at the airport and was put back on a plane And uh, to my great surprise, she replied and back and forth it went. Um, It was um, quite a long conversation. A lot of it was about, you know, how she's misunderstood. But uh, then she said, sure, I can try to help you to find out what happened. Send me all the details. She ended up sending me her email address to which I sent her a letter. And then I never heard from her again. That was it. The correspondence ended there. No, it didn't, because I then wrote about tweeting with Gulnara Karimova for The New Yorker. And I think she got quite upset about the article and started tweeting me, saying that um, I'm basically lying and that she never got my email and I never sent her anything. And how could she have responded to me if she never got anything? So I said, fine, I'll resend it, even though the email went. So I resend it. But again, she hasn't actually responded to, to the content on the email. So it's very interesting to see how she engages on Twitter. How were you able to determine for sure that the person you were tweeting with was, in fact, Gulnara? Because I, you know, often find myself tweeting with people who, uh, you know, are presenting themselves as something that they're not. That was definitely the question that, um, you know, I had and uh, Andrew from ICG from the International Crisis Group had as well. And we were talking to each other saying, is that really her? We consulted quite a few people who said that it is a validated real Twitter account and it is her account. She has only been on Twitter recently. But I remember also one of our 
our line of thinking was this. She has a degree from Harvard that she's very proud of and she always talks about it. One of the surprising things was the fact that the English, the grammar in her tweets was not quite up to the standard of a Harvard graduate. So we thought, hmm, you know, could that really be her? And then we were told that it really is her and it is a validated Twitter account. At that point, I thought, well, maybe it's somebody else tweeting on her behalf. But then I realized that nobody in Uzbekistan would dare to tweet on Gulnara Karimov's behalf and make that many English mistakes. <laughs> so it must have been her. Why do you think she agreed to speak with you on Twitter, where 140 characters, I mean, things can easily be taken out of context, even by the best journalists? It's a million-dollar question. Unfortunately, you'll have to ask Gulnara Karimova, and probably the only yeah, way to ask her happen, is to ask like... her on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. And I think part of it, you know, I've been puzzled myself, and I wonder, is she getting really bad PR advice? Because this innocent Twitter conversation got quite a lot of publicity, and she doesn't come across terribly well in it. I don't know, but I think that her reputation bothers her, and she does want to fix it, although she doesn't know how. But again, I'm just speculating and guessing, to be honest. But there is certainly some sort of insecurity and sensitivity that I sense through that conversation. And the fact that she engaged in the first place, I think, is also indicative of that. Well, the reputation, her reputation, is the most hated person in Uzbekistan, which is a pretty bad honorific. Um, do you have an example for us of why she is hated and feared? There are so many examples of why Gulnara Karimova is deeply, deeply unpopular in Uzbekistan. Some say even more unpopular and even more hated than her father. First of all, it's the contrast between her lifestyle and the life of millions of impoverished Uzbeks. It's up there with the worst dictatorships in the world and it, its economic development is slagging so far behind. And Gulnara has her hands in everything. I remember just a couple of years ago, in 2008 actually, I met a businessman in neighboring Kazakhstan in Almaty who had just uh, come from Uzbekistan. He fled Uzbekistan and he told me this story about how one day he, he was running a restaurant. It was a a new restaurant that was doing quite well and one day she came in with someone and with the bodyguards had lunch there later the day the bodyguards came back and basically informed him that the restaurant no longer belonged to him mm. and from that day for about a week he just started running into horrible trouble with the tax police with the police the family was in trouble everything fell apart and very quickly he left the country just uh, because is... uh, Gulnara liked the food it's because Gulnaro liked the restaurant and took over. That's one of the many reasons for her lack of popularity. As far as her music career, I mean, how's that going? Is she, she wants to be an international star. Is she a, a star in Uzbekistan with all these people hating her? Of course she's a star in Uzbekistan because she says she's a star in Uzbekistan. <laughs> there is no problem with that. As an international star, I mean, you know, tastes differ. Check out her music. It's out there on YouTube. You know, you may like it, you may not. I don't think she's known overseas. However, she does get occasional international recognition from some characters, including Gérard Depardieu, the French actor who recently took the Russian passport. He has been also going to Tashkent, to Uzbekistan, and he recently recorded a music video with her. This is the sort of thing that definitely you know, validates people like Gulnara Karimova in Central Asia. 
part of the problem of Gulnara Karimova is how far removed she is from the reality of life in Uzbekistan. She lives in a completely different world. You can read more about Natalia's correspondence with Gulnara Karimova, the most hated person in Uzbekistan. That's at theworld.org. You'll find a video of Ms. Karimova's singing talents there as well, including that video Natalia mentioned earlier of Gulnara singing with Gerard Depardieu. Natalia Antalava, thank you so much. Thank you. That'll do it for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman, tweeting at Marco Werman, and I thank you for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.